Okay, good evening, everybody. Happy Log Bomer. It didn't count yet, so you can't say it. All right, in 1962, President John F. Kennedy signed a proclamation which designated May 15th as Peace Officers Memorial Day and that week as Police Week. And therefore, police departments all throughout the country, sometime during that week, they usually have some kind of memorial service reflecting upon those who gave the ultimate sacrifice. Here in Boca Raton, for those of you who are able to attend, I had the opportunity of giving the benediction at the end of the service. And uh, once my kids saw the video from a couple years ago, and they saw the guys with the rifles and folding the American flag, they kept on uh, asking to come. So I took them out of school, and I brought them with me. It's only a half hour. And it was the whole ceremony, the bagpipes, and trumpets, and the rifles, and the folding of the flag, and the lowering of the flag, and then the special march, and the missing man march they do. It's a very moving. And you could look at it from the outsider. On one hand, it's kind of cool. I get to sit there with the mayor and the city council people and feel like I'm something special. But, you know, like, what are we doing? The whole thing is just very ritualistic, very, uh, very rigid. Everyone's standing there strong and tall, feeling very proud. As the ceremony went on, though, and I'm looking around, I know many of the, uh, the people there, and they're regular, down-to-earth, normal people. But you see, they were really, like, getting into it. They were really enjoying the ritual and every aspect of it. It's placing your, your hand over your heart for the Pledge of Allegiance, the singing of the National Anthem. People are really getting into it. And I realized, we don't do too much of this anymore. In, in our culture, the, that whole notion of being very formal, having the, the iron shirt, very starched, that kind of thing is just passe. Now it's be comfortable, chill out, be relaxed. We don't like rigidity. We, we don't like performance. We don't like theatrics. That's the thing of the past. But as I was experiencing it, there, there was something that was moving. And you see that people relate to being part of something like that. What is it? What is it? Why does it excite you? What connects me to a ceremony where if you look at each step of the, of the process, it's nothing that moving? I think the basic answer is, it's a moment where we're able to actually feel like we're part of something greater than ourselves. I'm not just doing my thing. If you're a police officer, you're going to work every day, and you and your family know you are risking your life, but when I take a step back and I appreciate, I'm part of this, this American dream. I'm part of this vision of, of having a, a country where, where people have freedom. And the way to maintain freedom is by having some level of authority. 
and some level of implementation of the law, and I'm part of that process, that empowers me to feel that I'm part of something so much greater than myself. I want to focus on that idea of becoming, or at least identifying with something so much greater than who we are, and through that I think it could really just infuse a, a, a deeper energy in every day of our lives. Here we are at Lag Bomer. We know famously the Gemara tells us that during 33 days, or at least during the period from Pesach until Shavuos, all of the disciples of Rabbi Akiva passed away, tragically. And the Gemara seems to give a reason for their death. Because they didn't treat each other with respect. That's all the Gemara says. And the world was desolate, Rashi explains, because Rabbi Akiva had the greatest yeshiva of the time. Right? Thousands of Talmudim were flocking from all over the world to, to bask in the presence of Rabbi Akiva. And within this short time period, they were all decimated. The world itself was destroyed. All of their Torah was forgotten. You can imagine the years and years of Rabbi Akiva and knowing his history, knowing his personal journey, building up that yeshiva, being now the paradigm of all of Torah learning in the world. And within a month's time, losing everything. Not just the relationships, not just the people, but the Torah that was learned over years and years, nishtakach, it was forgotten. With the demise of the human beings, Rashi says, the Torah they learned was also lost forever. Because they were disrespectful or they weren't conducting themselves with honor. They weren't respecting each other the way they should. It's a strange uh, reason to die. It might not be a good thing. You got to be a mensch. You've got to be respectful. And like we've spoken about many times in the past, the, the, the shorish, the, the root of everything we do, is based on who we are. But how do we understand they were therefore worthy of death? Thousands and thousands of people died, leaving their families devastated because they were lacking respect for each other? That sounds very harsh. It sounds very harsh. We know the Gemara continues, and it said, Ad Shabbat Rebbe Akiva, until Rebbe Akiva went down to the south, Vishenol Lahem, and he taught five new disciples, Rebbe Meir, Rebbe Yehuda, Rebbe Yossi, Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai, and Rebbe Lazar Ben Shemua. Those five new disciples, Vahem, Hem, Hemidu, Torah, Ososhah, they were the ones who were able to uphold the Torah at that point in time. Now to realize, just to understand deeply what those words mean, Heim, Heim, Hemidu Torah, Ososha. The Gemara in Sanhedrin says that if you have a Mishnah without any name behind it, it doesn't say, Amar Rebbe Yehuda, it just says a Halacha, the assumption is that Mishnah is Remeir. If you have a Tosefta, that's, that's anonymous. The assumption is it's Reb Nechemia. If you have a Sifra, a Midrashic source, 
we assume that's Rabbi Yehuda. If you have a Sifri, and it goes on, the Gemara says, to explain if there's no name behind this particular Bricer or Tosefta, who do we assume you are? Who's the authorship? However, the Gemara concludes, the Kulahu, but everything, every Mishnah, every Sifra, every Sifri, everything we find in all of Shas, Aliba de Rebbe Akiva. It goes according to Rebbe Akiva. If Rashi explains to me that regardless of who the author was, everything is understood through the prism, through the lens, through the teaching of which man? Of Rebbe Akiva. His thousands of Talmudim, over many, many years, they weren't the ones to disseminate that Torah. But everything we have in Shas, in all of the volumes we have of the Talmud, everything that's quoted, that was taught through Rebbe Akiva, to these five disciples, and then onward through their students. But the thousands of people that came before them, they lost everything. Why was it so severe? I want to share with you an amazing piece from Rameir Simcha of Davinsk. Rameir Simcha, he was the author of the Or Sameach, that's his commentary on the Rambam. And he was also the author of the Meshechachma, his commentary on Chomish. And he has a piece where when Rabbi Cheskel Abramsky, one of the great Torah personalities we've mentioned before, when he first saw this piece in the Meshechachma, he said to his students, it must be this was written with Ruach HaKodesh. The divine spirit is clearly speaking through Rabbi Simcha Meir, when he shares this passage with us. I want to share with you. The Meshachachim is bothered by the question, why is it that in the communication Hashem has with Yaakov, it says, Maros Laila? That Yaakov, he has this nevuah, he has this prophecy, a vision of the night. Two times, it speaks about Yaakov having a communication with Hashem, Belayla, when it's dark outside. We don't find that expression with Avraham or Yitzchak. What's special about Yaakov that Hashem is speaking with him at nighttime? So explains the Meshechachma. Lahoros, it's to teach us. Sha'af belayla becheshkes hagolos, that even during the night, referring to the darkness of exile, Shara Shechina Yisrael. Hashem will be with Klal Yisrael. Although we might feel distant from Hashem, Hashem is always with us. That's what it says, Yaakov Mesakein Arvis. Yaakov was the one to create Marib, the prayer we have at night. Because Yaakov represents Golis, he was the one that actually took Bnei Yisrael into exile. And therefore, only regarding Yaakov, Hashem speaks to him in the evening. Now he's bothered by a question. Is this true? Is it really true that Hashem is with us no matter where we are, no matter where we go? The Gemara tells us regarding Yecheskel, who was one of the greatest prophets, that Yecheskel, we know he lived in Bavel, in Babylon. And the Gemara explains the only reason he was able to experience prophecy is because he started an Eretz Yisrael. 
So because he started with that Kedusha, with that sanctity, and that's when the prophecy began, he was able to carry that with him outside of Eretz Yisrael. But the Meshachachim is bothered by the question, those of us who were never in Eretz Yisrael, or the Jewish people living in Egypt for hundreds of years, they were never in Eretz Yisrael themselves. How do they keep the Shekhinah with them? How do we maintain Hashem's presence if we don't have those same ingredients? Yecheskel, the prophet, was only able to keep Hashem with him because he started in Israel. He carried it over. But how do we carry it over? If we never started with that level of sanctity, how do we still know and have the confidence that Hashem is with us? Listen to his answer. He says, From here we can derive an amazing idea. That When we grab on, when we hold on to the tradition, to the Kabbalah, and we follow in the ways of our forefathers, then we're connecting with the past and we have the Kedusha, we have the power, we have that momentum of the past as well. He says, Therefore, even though we might be living in all these different places in the world until Mashiach comes, but the Shekhinah can still be here with us, Gambalayla, even during the night, because we're holding on to the way of our ancestors. That connects us to the past, and it's that connection that, that enables us to have the Shekhinah remain with us. But during a time where we forget the past, and we're no longer holding on to the ways of our ancestors, then we might find ourselves isolated. Then we might find ourselves alone. Because the Shechina, Hashem's presence, doesn't intrinsically dwell outside the land of Eretz Yisrael. It's only through our identifying with the past and holding on to those great Torah personalities and trying to implement that into the present that's how we maintain, that's how we hold on to the Shechina. So I think in just to understand this Meshechachma and to apply it to the Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva, what was Rabbi Akiva known for? And this is also a famous question. And he said, You should love your fellow like yourself. This is the guiding principle of all of Torah. So he was, he, he embodied Ava. He expressed love. But yet for some reason, and it's not clear why, but for some reason his disciples were not following in his ways. Why were they flocking to learn Torah then from him? Because they respected him. And they appreciated him. And they were blown away by his brilliance. And they wanted just to be in his presence. But they weren't accepting upon themselves the responsibility of attaching to his Mesorah, to his tradition. They were learning Torah, but they were not learning Rebbe Akiva's Torah. 
They were thriving in their spirituality. I'm sure they were very nice overall. And I'm sure they did love each other. They didn't have the utmost respect for each other's Torah. Okay. Is that worthy of death? The answer is no. Maybe it's not worthy of death. But there are, there, there are many different things that happen in life. And sometimes there's a midas hadin. Sometimes there's judgment in the world. And the only way to protect oneself is through being part of something greater than myself. So the Gemara is not saying they were worthy of death. It was just a direct punishment because they were lacking respect for each other. Rather, what the Gemara is saying is that because they were not following in the, in the hadracha, in the, in, the, in, the, in the ways of Rebbe Akiva, they weren't attached to him. They weren't part of that Mesorah. They weren't part of that, 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 that legacy. And therefore, they didn't have that protection. They didn't have that extra shmirah. That's what the Gemara seems to be saying. So, th- there's a word here that's used all the time, which is Mesorah. Mesorah is usually translated as tradition. And when most good Jews think of tradition, what do we think of? Fiddle around the roof, right? Tradition, which means I'm doing this because I have no clue, but my grandfather did it and it makes no sense, but I'll do it anyway. That's tradition, right? It's kind of silly, but I don't care. That's what everyone else does. Misora is not tradition. The idea of, of, of following the Misora, of being connected to, to the history and the destiny of Klal Yisrael, is so much more than tradition. I want to illustrate this story. Rabbi Emanuel Friedman, Feldman rather, he was the, the first rabbi in Atlanta. And he moved in when he was a young man, and there were about 40 families. And he really built up the place to hundreds of families. Now his son is the rabbi there. So I remember reading an article where he said, before his first Shabbos, the president of the shul came over to him. And he said, Rabbi, um, I want to ask you a favor. Is it possible to wear a black robe Friday night in Shabbos day when you're delivering the sermon? Like a long black robe. And he was a little bit taken aback by that question. Why a long black robe? Where does that come from? So the president explained, well, right now, we're, we're nothing. We're a small Orthodox shul. There's a conservative shul down the block, and they have hundreds of people every Shabbos. And the conservative rabbi wears a long black robe whenever he speaks. And I think just to have a decent competition, we should do the same. Are you cool with that? Are you all right with that, Rabbi? So Rabbi Feldman answered back, I don't feel comfortable. Why not? Is it usher? Is it prohibited? Probably not, right? Probably not, but it's just not something we do. Does it say anywhere in the Torah, Rabbi, you can't wear a long robe when you're giving a drasha? What's the big deal, right? You gotta play the game. It's all the shame Shemayim. We're doing it with sincerity. We want to bring people in. And it's an orthodox setting. Dress the part. But he declined. And the reason he gave was, it's not the Mesorah. It's not what we do. Mesorah is not uh, 
a book of law. It's not exactly the do's and the don'ts of Judaism. It's not the Shulchan Aruch. It's, it's reading between the lines, or it's almost the music in the background. What, what is Torah? You can't write that down on paper. That has to be absorbed through being in the presence of great people. That has to be learned through osmosis, through the culture, through the family, through, through hearing from, from people who have a mastery over Das Torah, over the whole concept of what Torah is and how it's lived. That's Mesorah. When we attach ourselves to Mesorah, and we don't deviate, we don't innovate, but we're trying to appreciate what was and bring it into our present lives, then we have a whole different level of Hashkacha Pratis. We have a whole different level of protection. The students of Rebbe Akiva, they were lacking in that area. They weren't grabbing on to Mesorah. We live in a, in a time where doing what we did is not cool at all. Out with the old and in with the new. And we can never squelch our, our independence. We can never take away the need for individual expression. And we have to always find ourselves within the, the confines of Torah. But, but the idea of appreciating the old, of cherishing what was and trying to live it and trying to bring it in and adapting it to our life. That's something that, that you could be very religious. We could be going through all of the motions and the mitzvos, but you could be out of touch with the music. The music of Judaism is misora. There's a beautiful discussion between the Isha Shunamis. She was a very righteous woman, and she would host Elisha. Elisha was the great disciple of Eliyahu Anavi, and he would come through her town often. So she said to her husband, you know what, honey, I have a great idea. Let's set up a nice little room for Elisha. Whenever he's here, he won't have to sleep on the couch, but we'll build him his own place. He could, he could live here with respect, have a nice bed, free Wi-Fi, continental breakfast. Let's make it nice for him. So they do that. And Alicia comes through the town, and uh, he's very thankful. So he sends his servant, Gehazi, to, to tell the lady, listen, thank you so much for all your trouble. What can we do for you? And here's what he suggests. He says, Melasos loch. What can I do for you? Hayesh ledabre loch el hamelech. Can I speak to the king on your behalf? Right? I have connections. Oel Sarhat Sava, or can I speak to one of the generals? I want to repay you in some way. What does she respond back to Elisha? Vitomer Besoch Ami Anochi Yoshavis. I live amongst my people. That's a strange conversation. I want to speak to the king on your behalf. I want to put in a good word. I'll speak to one of the generals. Besoch Ami. I live amongst my people. The Malbim quotes the Zohar. And the Zohar says, what's going on here is actually very deep. Alicia was asking this very holy woman, can I speak to Hashem on your behalf? Can I daven for you individually? Or maybe I could speak even to one of the Malachim to, to put in a good word for you to Hashem. Her response is, don't do that. 
Anochi besoch ami Anochi Yosheves, the Malbim explains, she'ena rotze lifrosh min haklal v'tfilas harabim. I don't want to separate myself from the community and the prayer of everyone together. Don't single me out. Don't single me out. Even though I appreciate your offer, but I want to be part of the power of Klal Yisrael. Don't look at me individually. If Hashem's looking at me individually, it might be a different judgment. It might be a different evaluation. It might be like the Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva. They were looked at as individuals, not part of the Klal. I don't want to take that risk. I want to be with my people. I want to be together with Klal Yisrael. So, so metaphysically, spiritually, grabbing onto Misora, cherishing the past and trying to live it in the present, does amazing things. But it's not just mystical. Psychologically, it has an awesome power as well. When I feel that I'm working on behalf of Klal Yisrael, I read something recently, Mirza next week I want to speak about uh, Yerushalayim and the Six Day War. Celebration of Yom Yerushalayim. And I read a conversation that took place, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a moving conversation. Where right before the IDF was going to take over the old city, a lady tells one of the soldiers to, to be him, to encourage him. She said, You should know we've been waiting for you our whole lives, but it's not just us. Generations of Klal Yisrael have been waiting for you for this moment. Imagine going into Muhammad now. Imagine, imagine that sense of responsibility. I'm not just fighting, it's another war. There have been many wars throughout history. I'm taking that next step where all of Kalal Yisrael has been waiting for me. This is my opportunity. Psychologically, when I'm working on behalf of the Jewish people, and I know that I represent the Jewish people, it's a whole different connection to Judaism. There's a fellow, uh, Simcha Perlman, a very tragic story. During the war, lost his wife and his children. And in the DP camps, he was a shell of his, uh, his previous self. And he wouldn't speak to anybody. He was introverted. He was just totally a ghost of a person. Some of his friends were trying to um, strengthen his amuna, but he had no, no room for amuna. He was angry at the world and he was angry with God. So there was one encounter he had with the Klausenberger Rebbe. The Klausenberger Rebbe, we know that he lost his entire family, his 11 children. Simcha sees the Klausenberger Rebbe walking with an entourage, a group of people, and he doesn't want to make eye contact because he has no interest in speaking to the Rebbe. But the Rebbe sees him, and he starts walking over to him. Not wanting to have any communication, Simcha Perlman starts walking the other direction, and he starts walking quickly. The Rebbe starts walking quickly as well. Finally, he catches up with him, and Simcha says to the Klausenberger Rebbe, please, I don't want to speak now. Can it wait? And the Rebbe said back to Simcha, he said, I totally understand that you don't want to speak to anybody. Trust me. I just want you to remember one thing, one thing. Always remember who you are. And those are the only words he said. Decades later, Mr. Simcha Perlman 
with Baruch Hashem, he was able to remarry and start a family and children and grandchildren who were Shomer Torah mitzvos. He said, those words of the Klausenberger Rebbe changed my life. He could have said anything. He could have tried to, to re-inspire my Amuna, to reignite the flame of my, of my faith in God, but I wasn't there. I wasn't ready for any of that. But all he told me was, always remember who you are which means, the way he understood it, where I'm coming from, what, what, what I have to give the world, who was my father, who was my grandfather, that's what kept me going. Der Ben Yonah writes an amazing thing. Der Ben Yonah says one of the, the greatest motivations in our Avodah Hashem is when we think to ourselves, it's not just about me, but I have generations to make proud. He says, Yotze lo mizeh, what emerges from this mindset, ki kasher yizave taive gedola belevavo, let's say I have a particular challenge, or I'm presented with something I don't want to do, I don't want to get involved with this, but it's so hard not to. What's going to help me? What's going to prevent me from going in that direction? Yevosh me'atzvo ve'yevosh me'avosa. I should have a sense of busha, I should stand in awe of myself and my ancestors. V'yoshiv l'nafsho v'yomer, I should tell myself, Adam gadol v'choshiv kamoni, somebody like me, not that I'm better than you, but someone of, 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 of my neshama. Hayom sh'yesh b'kama milos tovos, I have so many things going for me. V'shani ben gedolim, and I'm the son of great people. Ben Malchei Kedem, of the greatest kings. Eich esa haroha gedola hazos. How can I allow myself to do this? Forget about fear of God. Even before fear of God. I have a fear of myself. I should have a reverence of myself and what I represent. How could I do such a thing? V'chatosi lelokim, to sin to God, and perhaps even more powerful to me? Ula avosai. How could I sin to my ancestors? They want more from me. This is what I represent. Psychologically, being part of, of, of the history of Klal Yisrael is so huge, and if we could somehow engender that feeling in our children, that could change their whole paradigm of Judaism. I'm reading a story by Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman. He's, he was speaking about going on a tiul, going on some kind of trip in Eretz Yisrael. At the time, he had many small kids. And he told them all before getting on the bus, go to the bathroom. Got to make sure to go to the bathroom. The bus driver is not stopping for you no matter what. Yeah, your finger could be cut off and bleeding. He's not stopping, okay? Go to the bathroom beforehand. And they all do. They're on the bus. Five minutes later, six-year-old son, Abba, I have to go to the bathroom. So he brushed it off, okay? Hold on, we're going to be there shortly. Just another three and a half hours, right? <laughs> Fifteen minutes later, Abba, I really have to go. Sorry, we can't do anything. Abba, I really have to go. So Rabbi Kellerman now goes to the bus driver and is basically pleading, is there any way just to stop the bus and go on the side of the road quickly? No. No. We have a schedule. we got to be there. Leave me alone. Sit down. He can take care of himself. So the, the kid is now plotting, and he can barely contain himself. But they finally arrive. 
uh, at their destination, wherever it was. So they run off the bus. Rabbi Kellerman takes his six-year-old boy, frantically looking for a bathroom. And a couple different places, there's no restroom. And then he sees there's like this pub, there's a bar. He quickly runs inside. Is there a restroom here my son could use? Yeah, sure. So he always called his son, not by his actual name, but by a nickname, which was Tzadik. Tzadik, come here. Come here, Tzadik, which means righteous one. Come here, Tzadik. So he was always known as Tzadik. He now turns to Tzadik and says, Come, come, we got a bathroom for you. Just go right over there and make a left. I'll be standing right outside. Little boy who has to go to the bathroom more than anything else in the world looks inside, looks up at his father and says, but Abba, I'm a tzaddik. I can't go inside here. That's engendering a feeling of, of, how could I do this? And that's to avoid a negative, but to encourage myself or my, or my sphere of influence to do a positive. How can I not do this? This is what I was destined for. This is what my ancestors have been waiting for me to accomplish. We have to engender that within our children. But to be careful, we don't say tzaddik only when they do good things. Because then we're sending a very unhealthy message. I only think you're righteous when you listen. But when you disobey, then you're not a tzaddik. And that could be very unhealthy. You're a tzaddik no matter what you do. I'll reprimand you when you do something wrong. But don't make it contingent on behavior. You're a tzaddik because you're a neshama tahora. You're a pure neshama. Now, the, the, the one thing which I think makes it difficult, speaking practically, this feeling of mission, this feeling of connection to Misora, of, of, of identifying with the history of Kalal Yisrael and feeling, therefore, this charge for the future, it doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come automatically. We have to be proactive. And I want to just suggest a couple of practical ways of being proactive in, in creating this sense of a devakis, of a connection to Misura for ourselves and our families. The first step is we need, we need heroes. We need people we admire, people we look up to, people we could talk about and praise. The whole world has heroes. Obviously, little kids have the people they look up to. But every adult, you know, everyone has their, their basketball player or their movie star, people they look up to, people they think highly of, at least in some area of life. We need to have a culture where we have heroes of Torah personalities. Remember, there's a conversation between, there is a more of a Hasidish Rebbe and a non-Hasidish Rav. And they were having this dialogue where the, uh, the, the non-Hasidish rabbi was saying, I think it's a little bit silly. There's so much time that's spent, you know, the boys are going back and forth speaking about this rebbe and that rebbe, almost like they're superheroes, you know? Stop doing that and get involved. Learn more Torah. Do something productive. Speaking about the rebbe. So this Hasidish rabbi said back, he said, that's true. It might be a narishkai. It might be a little bit of a waste of time but I'd rather have my boys doing that than talking about the basketball players. We have to have heroes. You gotta choose your heroes. Even looking back at the, at the, the football cards, or the baseball cards, right back in the 19, 
60s or 70s, not that I was around then, but if you look at a card from back then, so you have, you know, the baseball player sitting there with, with one, one arm like this and the baseball behind his shoulder, you know, with the hat up in the air. That was the extent of it. Even a football player, you know, someone running with his arm out. Nowadays, what does a football card look like? Right? It's this massive human being tattooed from you know, head to toe, just pouring out of the page with muscle, and these are our heroes. So, Ribono Shalom, if your kids are going to have heroes, let them learn about Torah personalities. And it doesn't have to be people from the past, people from hundreds of years ago. If anything, the, the more closer to the present, the better, the more relatable they are. You know, read a biography, and, and there are issues with biographies. Sometimes it portrays these people as superhuman, and that could be detrimental. But there's a lot to be gained from a biography. Learn about this Torah personality. Learn about Reb, 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 Reb Yisrael Belsky, who just passed away a few years ago. Learn about his diligence and his, his curiosity and his desire for, for Chachmah. And share those stories with your children. We have to have heroes. It says regarding Yitzchak that when he dug the wells, He named each of his wells that he dug, and he called them the same names that his father did. That's cute, right? My dad always liked the name the Harry. So this well is Harry because my dad, Avram, also named his well Harry. Why is the Torah telling us this? A little bit of a random piece of information. So the Rebbe Nebuchadnezzar says, Yitzchak did it, lekavod aviv, for the honor of his father. But more than that, he did it for himself. He did it to reinforce the idea that I don't want to deviate from the ways of my great father. I want to take the torch that he gave me, and I want to bring that to the next generation. And therefore, even in the small things, even in the trivial aspects of life, if I could do something that connects me to my father, and therefore have more of the impetus to pass it on, I want to do that. I'll call the wells the exact same name. That's Misora. That's being proactive in maintaining a connection and identification with Misora. I remember my Rosh Hashiva who passed away in 2008. Hanach Leibowitz. So he would always tell the story at least once a year on his father's yard site. His father was David Leibowitz, and he was one of the very close disciples of the altar of Slobodka. And whenever he would speak about his father, when Rashiva would speak about Rav David, he would always share with us that Rav David would always quote his Rebbe. He would always say, My Rebbe the altar would say, My Rebbe the altar. To the point where, when he suffered a heart attack in 1945, and he's in the ambulance, the last words out of Reb David Liebermitz's mouth was, my Rebbe the altar. He was telling his son that my Rebbe the altar told us that in a, in a situation of sakana, of danger, you should say Tehillim Kapitel Chaf seven times. My Rebbe the altar said that. He was living with that connection to the previous generation. And then my own Rosh Hashiva would say that when he took over the yeshiva, he was about 24, and he said he did it because he thought that's what his father wanted, and he wanted to, to keep alive the flame of Slobodka 
that Torah that was learned in pre-war Europe and bring it to the shores of America in their own unique way. But he said sometimes it would get so hard. And I was a young man and there were barely any, any people in the yeshiva. And the thing that kept me going was only one image. My father. Knowing that my father was Moser Nefesh, he gave his life for this. And I want to carry it on because that was his dream and that's my dream. So we have to be proactive, we have to create heroes, and once we have those heroes, that could inspire us. We have to get excited. I right, gotta get excited. Share with you a beautiful piece from the Ralbag. He writes this in the 1300s, in number 12. This is Osiud Beis. He says, Rova cheshek bebekoshes hashlemos v'achachma how do we get to higher levels of spirituality? How do, we, how do we expand our horizons? It's through having a bakasha, having a desire. I want to grow more. And where do we see this? We see this from Alicia. Alicia, we quoted before, who had the conversation with the holy woman of Shunam. Alicia, he had this strong need to grow. And therefore, he left everything behind. His family was wealthy. And what did he do? And he gave up his whole life to be a Mishares, to be able to serve Eliyahu. For what purpose? To learn from him. I want to grow, and I know that it's not just through the book. I can know all of the books on the shelf, but I might be missing the music missing the Misora, missing that, that, that reality of Torah, how it's lived. I want to be in the presence of Eliyahu Anavi. And that's why it says about Elisha, when the, when the Tanakh is praising him, it says, Asher Yotzak Mayim Eliyahu. He was the one who poured water on the hands of Eliyahu. And the Gemara says, it doesn't say he learned from Eliyahu. Of course he learned. But he poured water in his hands. That's teaching us that Gedola Shimusha Yoser Milimuda, just being in the presence and being able to interact with someone of that stature, I could gain more than learning from that person. It's living and seeing how it's lived. The excitement has to be expressed, it has to be contagious. Right? There's always a conversation in school trying to get the kids into learning, is competition a good thing or is it unhealthy to tap into that? And that's a, that's a hard one to answer and there are many factors and the basic answer is I don't know. But, but there's definitely something about creating a culture of excitement for learning where, where you, get, you get the boys and girls into it. When I'm excited, then I'm connecting with it. When I'm connecting with it, then I'm part of the Masora. When I'm part of the Masora, I'm living on a whole different plane. I'm not doing my own thing. It says that Yoshua was a nar lo yomish mitocha ohel. He was a lad, a nar. He was a youth who never left the tent of Moshe. The Ibn Ezra is bothered based on a calculation. Why is it calling Yoshua a nar? At this point in time, he was actually 56 years old. He wasn't a little boy anymore. Why is it calling him a nar? Explains the Ibn Ezra. It's not telling us the age of Yoshua. It's giving us a glimpse into the mindset of Yoshua. 
he was so excited to be able to be there with Moshe Rabbeinu. It was a nairus. It was a, it was a sense of youth. We've got to make it exciting to connect with people who are greater than ourselves. And we have to do our hishtadlis. We have to be proactive to be in their presence. I'll end with the story. I remember a couple years ago, I called up one of my own Rebbe, Rebbe Luban in North Miami Beach. And uh, I forget when it was. Maybe it was a Cholomoed sometime. So I called them up and said, we're going to be in North Miami. My wife is taking uh, the girls shopping. Can I bring the boys over for a bracha? And in his, you know, classic, humble way, he's like, yeah, no. I said, no, I'd just love to come just for a few minutes. So he said, the truth is, we're in the middle of a whole bunch of meetings. I wouldn't mind a break. So come on by. So when I first told my boys, at the time they were probably five and three, we're going to see a rabbi, we're going to see Tati's Rebbe and get a bracha. Okay. Better than going shopping. (laughs) But in the car ride there, I was trying to pump it up, trying to get them really enthused about it. And, And it worked to the point where we're getting excited, and then we go and we see him, and they're standing there, and they're not in awe of much, I'll tell you that. Not their parents, at least. But they're standing there shaking as Rabbi Benjamin Luban is there about to give a bracha. But, but they feel this, this something greater than life, getting a blessing from such a great person. Probably the greatest, no greatest, but one, one beautiful gem of nachas, I had a few years ago, I was speaking to my son Avraham. We just celebrated his sixth anniversary post-transplant, Baruch Hashem. And uh, we were in uh, New York, and we davened together. I took him for Marv at one of the yeshivas there, Orachayim. Nice, beautiful building, a lot of Bachram learning. So we're walking home. It was at the end of Shabbos. And the previous day, we were talking about the gift of, uh, not gift of life, make a wish. I had to make a wish. The Wasser football stadium, right? that's through make a wish. When a child goes through some serious medical stuff, sometimes there's funding to, uh, to, to give them something they had in mind, you know? So we were talking about different things he would choose. We're walking back from the yeshiva, and he tells me, you know what? The whole uh, the, the make a wish thing, if I could make a wish, I think I'd wish to have one of those, one of those big, one of those great big yeshivas in Boca Raton, Florida. To be able to have any sense of excitement, not just about Torah, but about a connection to, to the Mesorah, to the previous generation, trying to be proactive. These things don't happen by themselves. Mesorah is the music, Besoch Ami Anochi Yoshavis. We want to be part of Klal Yisrael. We don't want to be distinct. We don't want to have uh, that, that same, that same uh, dynamic as Rabbi Akiva's students where somehow they're off in their own world. We want to be part of the Mesorah. Psychologically, it's the most powerful tool in the world. And like Simcha Perlman was told by the Klausenberger Rebbe, always remember who you are. You have an achrayis. You have generations and generations of people. They're waiting on you to carry on the torch. Abba, I'm a tzaddik, I can't go in here. That's the way we have to feel about ourselves. That's the message we have to give to our children. It's always my Rebbe, my Rebbe the altar. 
trying to tap in, trying to learn from as many people as we can, appreciating the past. Narlo yomush mitocha ohel, with a sense of youth, with a childlike excitement. And through that, we should celebrate Lag Omer. Lag Omer is the celebration of Heim, Heim, Hemidu, Torah, Oso, Shah. They kept the Torah alive, those five massive Torah giants, because they were holding on to the Messorah with all of their might. Good job.